Hey everybody, welcome to Sunday School Class from Pastor Levi's office. Here we are uh, going to be covering chapter 18 in the book of Acts. Uh, we've been going through this book since September. Hopefully we'll be able to uh, get it done here by uh, by the end of the school year, if we ever have a rest of the school year. So I miss all you guys. I wish we were in class together. I wish I could be there uh, making fun of Carrie Glevy as, as I normally do, but uh, I can't do that in person anymore, so I get to do it over here online, which may be picking a fight that I can't really win. So uh, let's, without further ado, let's get into the, let's get into the book here and, and we'll cover this as, as quickly as we can. All right, so we've, we've been in this last section uh, of the book of Acts here for quite some time. It starts with Paul and Barnabas being set aside called to missions uh, from the church at Antioch. They're uh, praying there and then they're commissioned to go out and to plant some churches. So they go around preaching the gospel and as we've seen throughout uh, this book that Paul's main thing that he does is he preaches in the synagogues first and he almost always gets some converts but then after that um, he turns to the Gentiles after the majority of the synagogue and whatever town he's in rejects him he starts and he preaches uh, to the gospel or he preaches the gospel to the Gentiles now you remember a few chapters ago that that leads to some consternation among uh, Jewish Christians because Paul is telling them uh, that the Gentiles don't have to become Jews. So this group of Jewish Christians come down from Jerusalem, uh, down to Antioch, saying they're acting on behalf of the church of Jerusalem, and say, hey, in order to be saved, you have to be circumcised, and you have to keep the law of Moses. So that leads us to the, uh, the church in, um, or the council in Jerusalem, or the council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. Uh, Peter um, Peter, James, and Paul all speak in unison there, saying, no, that's not how God has acted. That's not what's going on here. We've entered into a new time of salvation history. So Jewish Christ or Gentile Christians don't need uh, to keep the law. They don't need to be circumcised in order to be saved. Salvation comes by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. So, uh, that letter then is sent, or the, the findings is, is of that council in Jerusalem is then sent down to Antioch, and Paul actually keeps that uh, findings with him, and he says he travels around to these Gentile churches that he's planted. Um, and then he says to Barnabas, hey, who was his companion on his first missionary journey, hey, let's go and check on our churches. But Paul and Barnabas split up because uh, Barnabas wants to take Mark with him, and Paul doesn't because Mark abandoned them for some reason during the first missionary journey. So Paul sets out on the second missionary journey. He heads north. Uh, Barnabas heads in a different direction. And uh, as he heads north, he takes with him Silas, who's from Jerusalem. And then he meets Timothy uh, on the road as well. And then eventually he actually meets up with Luke too. Um, so, and as he does this, as, as this group is traveling around, specifically around Galatia, they want to head into the Asia area, but God closes the doors. He says, you don't get to go in there, but this eventually leads him uh, to end up in Philippi, and this is um, in well, Troas and then Philippi, and he meets up with Luke at this point for at least a, a, a small part of time, and then in Philippi, he has great success, and this is where we get the letter to the Philippians, so God was opening and closing doors for Paul as he traveled around the countryside, and so Paul preaches in Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica. Uh, and as he does that, uh, in Philippi, he's beaten, he's imprisoned, uh, and then he's he has a, mira a miracle happen where he could escape, but he chooses not to. And this leads to the Philippian jailer repenting and believing, and indeed his entire household uh, does just that as well. 
And then at the end of this, um, after he gets chased out of uh, Thessalonica and Berea, he ends up in Athens uh, all by himself. And he's provoked in Athens as he looks at all the idols. So he starts preaching the gospel, not only in the synagogue, but also in the marketplace. He gets called to the Areopagus, which is Mars Hill, and he preaches in front of the probably the education council there. And they're saying, hey, you're preaching foreign divinities. You're preaching foreign gods here. We want to hear more to see whether or not you're allowed to continue teaching this. And Paul lays out his gospel there as to gives us a good example of how we can address and confront um, those who have no shared Christian understanding. And he starts with creation. He starts with God being the creator over everything. And then that God, as the creator, uh, is also going to judge us one day. And he's going to judge us through his son, Jesus Christ, so that man is made in God's image. He appoints to that, that we are all his offspring. We live and we move and we find our being in God because God rules over everything. We have rebelled against him. We're going to be judged through the, the man, Jesus Christ. And that salvation then is offered through him and through him alone. So that's where we left off at Acts 17. We'll be jumping into here at, uh, at chapter 18 now. So let's go ahead and do that. Uh, here's a map, uh, a quick map here of what what it looks like, uh, the second missionary journey. As you look up there as Thessalonica and Berea, from Berea he sailed on to Athens. And then from Athens he's going to head not that far away uh to Corinth. Corinth, if I remember correctly, it's yeah, it's about 46 miles west of Athens. It's actually a bigger town than Athens as well. A big hub, as it were. And we'll, we'll get a little bit more into Corinth here. And we did first and second Corinthians in the Sunday school class a few years ago. So we should be somewhat familiar with that. It's really like the town of Las Vegas is for us today. It's known for its sin. It's known for its immorality. And, uh, and that poses the special challenges that Paul addresses in those two epistles in the New Testament. So let's go ahead and read here Acts 8, Paul and Corinth. Acts 18, that is. All right, so let's read. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, and recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Uh, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was, or was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garment and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius, Justice, a worshiper of God, his house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you, or no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Oh, I think we just... Oh, sorry, that's verse 11. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo 
said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse uh, to judge I refuse to judge or to be a judge of these things. And he drove them out from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, that's a good one, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. All right, so our big idea, our main point uh, here for Acts chapter 18 is the Lord uh, protects his people as they preach the gospel. And really, this could be the story of all of Paul's ministry here. He's preaching the gospel, and even though he gets beat up sometimes, even though he gets thrown in prison, even though he's even been stoned at this point, the Lord is still protecting him. He, yes, he's using his suffering for good and, and developing Paul as a missionary and as an apostle, but this idea of the providence, the sovereign care of the Lord for his people and for those who risk much to bring out the gospel, that is really what we see uh, here in, in this passage. So, Paul in Corinth. It starts here as Paul makes some friends. Now again, let's review a little bit of what we know about the town of Corinth. Corinth was again 46 miles west of Athens. It was known for its immorality. In fact, the slang in the Greek Corinthianize, to Corinthianize meant to be sexually immoral. That's what the town was known for. There was a great temple on the top of the hill to Aphrodite or Venus, the goddess of love. It had about a thousand sex slaves that would work that temple and who would flood out into the streets at night um, as prostitutes. Uh, so this was this was the culture of, of Corinth. And this is where Paul is now at. And while he's there, he meets up with um, Aquila and Priscilla. And these guys are Christians who were cast out of Rome. So uh, outside of what history Luke has recounted for us here, Somebody has preached the gospel in Rome. Someone has preached it, and, and there is a church there. In fact, when Paul writes the Roman letter, he has not yet been to Rome. He has not yet uh, planted a church there. So there are other missionaries, there are other apostles, there are other people going out and preaching the gospel uh, besides Paul here. But the, the, the book of Acts does focus in on uh, this ministry in particular, the ministry of Paul. So he makes friends with Aquila and, and, and Priscilla. Uh, they had lived in Rome, but Claudius at the uh, in 49 AD had cast out all the Jews from Rome. He had told them, you have to leave, you have to be gone. And the reason we have for that is because there's some uproar being caused within the Jewish community. And that uproar is almost certainly caused by the preaching of the gospel. It's, it's almost certainly caused by um, Jesus and his followers. We have uh, an account of this. An explanation given to us by a Roman historian, he says this, The Jews were making constant disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, which is Christ, and he, he, that's the emperor, banished them from Rome. So as the gospel is going forward into Rome, now the Jews are having the same response in Rome who don't convert as we see Paul. And they're causing upwards, they're causing riots, they are not happy, and this leads to uh, the emperor saying, get out, you have to leave Rome, we're not going to put up with this. So Paul meets up with these uh, two individuals, and 
in Corinth. He was probably run out of funds at this point from his sending church in Antioch. Uh, so we learn that he is a tent maker by trade. And it just so happens, by God's providence, he encounters two other Christians who are also uh, tent makers. So they're working together there in Corinth, making tents to supply the needs of his ministry. So he's a bivocational minister at this point. He works to provide for his own needs, and then he preaches uh, as he as he can. So Paul and Aquila share that share that trade. Uh, Paul gives a lengthy discussion of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, as a preacher, I have the right uh, to be paid for what I do, in 1 Corinthians 9, but I have chosen to forego that right because I don't want it to be a stumbling block. I don't want people to think that I am going around planting churches just so that you will pay me money. I'm preaching this gospel free of charge. I have a right to be paid, but I have chosen to forego my rights for the good of others. And the irony of all of this is, is because he refuses to be paid, the Corinthians find are thinking that he's worthless. The problem isn't that he wanted money, it's the problem that he refused their money in Corinth. And so they, they, they revile him as thinking he's not good enough uh, to be paid, so maybe they shouldn't be listening to him uh, in the first place. So here's Paul doing this by vocational ministry. Nonetheless, every Sabbath he preached the gospel in the local synagogue. And then he gets to that tipping point he always gets to in verses uh, verses 5 and 6 here. As he, he says to the, uh, let, me, let me find my notes here again. As he says in verse 5, when they arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. When they opposed and reviled him, he took or he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, excuse me, I will go to the Gentiles. Okay, so a couple things going on here. First, as Silas and Timothy catch up with him, the verb changes here. Uh, the ESV doesn't really do it justice here, but it, it appears that Paul has now dedicated himself full-time uh, to preaching again. So either he's made enough money or quite possibly Aquila and Priscilla are, are financially supporting him now that he's de- he's setting aside himself completely to preaching in the synagogues now. That, that is what he's doing. He's preaching, he's teaching, he's discipling, and he's receiving funds uh, to do that. Now, as they find him doing that, he's, this is the tipping point, and they are reviling him. They're reviling the message. So it says that he shook out his garment, and that's just a fancy way of saying he's dusted himself off from these people. He's saying, I'm done with you. I've done everything I can. I have no responsibility anymore. That's what he says. Your blood will be on your own heads, not on my head. I'm not responsible for what has happened here. It's all on you at this point. He says, I'm innocent to the the judgment that is going to fall upon you. You've heard the gospel message, and now uh, you have rejected it. So Paul is saying, I am innocent. Innocent, And really what he's doing here is he's citing Ezekiel 33, uh, verses uh, 1 through 7, uh, that area around there. We'll get to that. We'll read that here in a little bit. But he's, he's citing this biblical precedent that as an apostle, as a preacher, as a Christian, he has this obligation to preach the gospel, but he can't make people believe. But if he's silent, that's on him. But he hasn't been silent. He's fulfilled his moral obligation to teach them uh, the way. And they have rejected it, and that's on them. But even though, even though many reject him as a whole, you could probably say most of the Jews in that synagogue end up rejecting him. Many, uh, many do end up believing his message as well. So it says in verse seven, and he left there and he went out to the house of a man named Titius Justus, 
a worshiper of God. His house was right next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So even though we can say that as we speak as a whole, as a group, they rejected it, there are individuals, including the leader of the synagogue, who repent and believe. And the entire household of the leader of the synagogue repents and believes and is baptized. And there you have that formula again and again that we've seen throughout the book of Acts. They preach the gospel, people repent, they believe, and then they are baptized. Right? And their entire household here again. The entire household has believed and that has led to the household being baptized. This isn't uh, any type of infant baptism whatsoever. It is the baptism of those who have professed faith. So many believe, many do come into the kingdom. And it's at this point where he's at this tipping point. Many are believing, but many are getting really upset at him uh, that this would be where Paul would start to face that type of fierce opposition. And at this point in Corinth, uh, the Lord promises uh, protection for him. He promises uh, protection, verses 9 through 11 here. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching uh, the word of God among them. So many believe, but Paul's still got more work to do. So a couple things going on down here. The term Lord used throughout the book of Acts and really throughout most of the New Testament is used to refer to the second person of the Trinity. That's Jesus. Lord is shorthand for Jesus and God is shorthand for the Father. So we have the here saying the Lord has appeared to him. The Lord Jesus has appeared to Paul in a vision saying, hey, keep going. I'm going to protect you. And the reason I'm going to protect you, the second thing you need to see from this part, is that I have many people in this city. Right? God has led him to Corinth because God has appointed certain people in Corinth to repent and believe. And because until that number has been filled for Paul, God, Jesus is going to protect him and to make sure that they hear the gospel and that they will repent and believe. So God makes the way for him and he protects him and he ensures that these things are going to happen. So here's that protection theme. I'm going to make sure you get done what I have appointed for you to do so you can have confidence, you can have surety, knowing that I will protect you uh, in this time. So, uh, well, this part is a little more, you guys can't really see this. It's, uh, yeah, there we go, that's better. So now the Jews uh, a turn and attack Paul. Again, this has happened in just about every city so far. The Jews now have had it up to here, they're done with Paul, and now uh, they formulate a way to attack. So we get this time marker here, in here that they are brought before Gallio, who's the proconsul of that area. Now we have uh, solid records from that time that Gallio was the proconsul in that area, area, era, or area from 51 to 52 A.D. All right, so Claudius expels the Jews from Rome in 49 A.D. 51, a couple of years later, somewhere in 51, 52 A.D., we're now in Corinth with Priscilla and Aquila and Paul. All right, so the Jews bring him. Uh, before there, and the accusation he or before this proconsul to be put on trial, and the accusation is the same we've seen in the other towns. Christianity is illegal. It's a new religion. You can't allow him to keep doing this. You can't allow him to preach because he. This is not Judaism. That's the claim they're making. It is an entirely new religion, and Rome does not accept new religions. But we see here that God is faithful to His promises. Verses fourteen through sixteen. God saves Paul. 
He saves him just as he says that he will. Because as Paul is about to speak in defense of himself, he doesn't even have to. Gallio has made up his mind. The proconsul stops him. He says, he makes it plain here. He says, if this was actually a matter of law, if this was actually a matter of violent crimes, I would intercede. But this is a religious dispute. This is none of my business. I want nothing to do with this. This is a religious dispute, a theological dispute. You guys deal with it on your own. Now get out of my courtroom. That's pretty much what he, he says. So the Jews, at this point, because they had been ostr- or kicked out, exiled from Rome, have been ostracized uh, by the leadership in the area. They don't want to be dealing with the Jewish people. Uh, they, they really don't. And so he says, get out of here. We're not, we're not, we're not interfering with your intramural uh, debate here between the Christian faction and the uh, traditional Jewish faction. So God moves the, the this basically, the pro-council in effect declares Christianity to be allowed. He says, I'm not touching this, which means I'm not going to pass judgment on Christianity, which means for now it's legal in Corinth and in that surrounding area. And we see at the very end a kind of sad note that ends here is that you live by the sword, you die by it. The Jews who bring him, bring them before the proconsul are actually the ones who end up getting uh, beat up. There's a little bit of disagreement here of who Sosthenes actually is. There's a Sosthenes that we encounter later on who's accompanying Paul. We don't think it's him. It's almost certainly it says here is the leader of the synagogue. He's probably the one who replaced Crispus, the leader of the synagogue who converted to Christianity. And as Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and the opposition to Christianity, as he's leaving the proconsul, probably a group of Gentiles beat him up. And, G- and Gallio does nothing about it. Why? He doesn't care. There really was a bit of anti-Semitism uh, in, this, in this time frame uh, directed towards the Jews. So Gallio has nothing to do with it, and the Gentiles are upset with him. And uh, Sosthenes, the irony of it all, is the one who actually experiences judgment. So that's the first section there as we see Paul... Uh, in Corinth. Well, let's talk a little bit about theology and practice here. Uh, what Paul gets at here when he says the blood is on your head, you're, it's not on me, is this idea that we do have a moral obligation to evangelize. When, when Christ says to us in Matthew 28, you know, go out and make disciples of all nations, preaching the gospel, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded, and then baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, uh, that is a command, which means we are morally obligated uh, to fulfill it. And if we don't, then the blood of people who never hear the gospel is actually on our hands, on our head, instead of when someone rejects. So Paul makes reference here to a passage in Ezekiel 33, verses, uh, I got 1 through 9 here. Uh, I'll read it to you from my computer screen here. The word of the Lord uh, came to me. I have it right here. Yep. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, and he did not take warning. Or he heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning, his blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned, the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity. 
but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. And if I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you will surely die. And you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way. That wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you shall have delivered your soul. So the ethics here are uh, the ethics here are really clear. All right, let me keep up here on the slides. The ethics here are are really clear that when God says speak and warn people of his coming judgment. If you see that judgment coming and you look upon people with a hard, callous heart or other fear and you say, I'm not going to say anything, you may think that's love and you may think it's all these different things. You may think it's kind and compassionate, but what actually it is, it's cowardice and uh, not doing your job. Right? So you set a watchman upon a wall to watch out for the coming of an army. And if that watchman sees the army coming in and doesn't warn the city, he's a traitor. And the blood of the people is on his hands. But... If he sees it and he warns the people and the people uh, do nothing, then it's on the people. And that's our second point here, is if people reject the gospel, that's ultimately on them. And that's what Paul says to them. I've preached it to you. I've been faithful uh, to my calling and you have said no. So it's on you now. It's not on me. I've done everything I can. The, uh, another thing we should take from this passage is this confidence we should have in our sharing um, be confident in our sharing, for God has appointed many to believe. As we share the gospel, we know that in any city, God has people waiting to hear the gospel. God has his appointed people. We don't know who they are. We'll tell by their responses to the gospel, but that gives us confidence that God goes before us. He's working, uh, bringing about uh, this, bringing about salvation uh, to many. Let's move on now to this, uh, this next section here. Ending one journey as we come to an end of Paul's second missionary uh, journey here in Acts 18, 18 through 23. I'll read you the passage here. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of his brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sancrii, he had cut his hair and he was under a vow, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Big idea here is um, God, who called, P or who called Paul to this life, both sustained and blessed it. So we're reaching the end of Paul's missionary journey here. And what we're seeing is God's sovereign blessing upon his faithfulness. He's sustained him. He's blessed him. There's been much fruit uh, from that preaching of the gospel. God has protected him and delivered him through uh, another journey here. So first thing we see here is trusting God's faithfulness. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila at Sincrae, he had his hair cut for he was under uh, a vow. So Priscilla, Aquila go with him to Ephesus. Paul doesn't end up staying in Ephesus very long at all. But as he stays there, uh, he, he does preach, but he cuts his hair. And what this is a reference to is um, 
he was under a Nazarite vow. Paul had made a Nazarite vow at some point. Uh, the specifics of that vow are, vow are laid out in Numbers uh, chapter 6. So if you want to read more on that. But the highlights of it are is really he can't have any wine or strong drink during this time. He lets his hair grow. And what he's doing is petitioning God for blessing and protection. It's most likely that he did that at the outset of his second missionary journey. And now as he's reached the end of it, he's cutting his hair and thankfulness to God. So the hair that he cuts off from that, he would then take to the temple in Jerusalem or that that's what they should do. And he would offer a sacrifice with that hair and he would burn it in thanksgiving and offering to God for what God has done for him. Uh, so we'll see when Paul gets back to Caesarea, it's, he heads up to Jerusalem. It's very likely that he would have offered the sacrifices at that time, uh, or he may have done it on a different altar as well. But he probably did it at, at the temple. We see here also that he stops here in Ephesus. His stop in Ephesus really is not long at all. He leaves his, his companions there in Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila. They stay behind in the synagogue there as Paul's preaching. And the synagogue seems to have a pretty positive response overall to what Paul is saying. But Paul, And they say, hey, Paul, stay. But Paul says, no, I'm not going to stay. It's time for me to go, go back home, to go back to Caesarea and Antioch. But he says, if the Lord wills it, uh, I will come back. I'll come back to you guys. And we do know in the very next chapter, Paul's going to be in Ephesus. And he's going to be in Ephesus for quite some time. Ephesus is going to be one of his major stops on his third missionary journey. So he does end up back there uh, working you know, with the believers in, in Ephesus. So he, he heads back then. And as he heads back, he arrives in Caesarea, verse 22 there. He heads up. It says he heads up to see the church. The church there is a reference to the church in Jerusalem, the head church. Uh, he heads up there and give, probably gives a report of his missionary journeys and everything that's happened. Uh, and then he heads back down to his sending church uh, in Antioch. And then verse 23 is really an introduction to his, his third missionary journey. There's going to be a brief uh, pause on that as we deal with Apollos in the next section. We'll pick up uh, the third missionary journey in more depth next week in the next recording. Uh, but he's on the road again here, traveling around. And uh, his, sec or his third missionary journey here, Probably starts in about 52 A.D. as far as we can tell and ends around 57 A.D. So it's a five-year trip with lots of stops and uh, long pauses in between. Um, he's going to check in on the churches he planted in his first and second journey. He's also going to plant some more churches as well with some major stops there in Ephesus and also in Corinth as well. So that kind of ends, uh, ends this section uh, for us and ends the second missionary journey. And that leads us to our final portion of scripture here. And this class goes a lot quicker without you guys, but it's also a whole lot less fun sitting in self-quarantine in my office, waiting to waiting for all those questions I'm going to get, but I got none. So uh, let's look at this last section here, Acts 18, 24 through uh, 28. So we deal with the introduction of a new character, a new teacher on the scene named Apollos. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia. The, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those 
through grace who had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. A big idea, our main point here for this section is sometimes private correction and instruction is the best route to take. As we see Priscilla and Aquila doing just that here with young Apollos. Alright, so, really brief section here. Apollos, um, or Paul leaves, Apollos comes into Ephesus, uh, and he shows up, and he's someone who is very gifted in rhetoric and public speaking. He has a good knowledge of Scripture and of the way of the Lord. It actually says he has an accurate knowledge of the Lord, but it's an incomplete accuracy, as, as we'll see as we, we dive in here. He knows the gospel. He's proclaiming it uh, in the synagogue there. Well, it's Priscilla and Aquila are sitting there. Uh, he probably heard it in his native town in Alexandria. So again, there's this idea that though we're zooming in on Paul and his missionary work, there are lots of other missionaries going around preaching the gospel. It's not just Paul who's out there planting churches. There are others uh, doing it as well. So he was a very competent, eloquent, and passionate man. He was fervent in spirit. He spoke well. And moreover, he taught accurately. That's the key, right? So he can be eloquent and not teach accurately of the gospel. And uh, that's going to be a problem. But he is teaching accurately. Of what he knows, he is teaching truth uh, to the people. Now, we'll get into a little bit more in this in the last couple of verses. Uh, but uh, that eloquence is actually going to be a hindrance uh, to his ministry in some ways as well. So uh, as he's sitting, as he's preaching in the synagogue, teaching in the synagogue, Priscilla and Aquila are sitting there going, nodding their heads going, yeah, this guy knows so much, but there's something lacking. Uh, we're not giving real specifics of it, only that he only knew the baptism of John. That, of course, is the baptism of John the Baptist, the one that he taught. He did not know about the baptism of Jesus. So, what was, so on the one hand, we can say, as Luke does, that he was teaching the Bible accurately and the gospel accurately, but it also still lacked something. There was something incomplete about it. And it seems that he either didn't know, maybe he didn't know about the death and resurrection of Christ, I don't think that's as likely, uh, but he does, apparently he didn't know maybe about the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost and the call to baptize those who repent and believe in the name of Jesus. I think that's a little bit more likely. So there's, there was some deficiency, but that deficiency in his teaching wasn't great enough to say that he was inaccurate in his portrayal of the way or the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's teaching, he's teaching accurately. Um, Aquila and Priscilla, because he is, is mostly accurate, but just deficient in some areas, don't publicly confront him. They pull him aside and instruct him so that he can be more accurate, more faithful to the full message of Jesus. So he seems to be teachable. He receives this news. He's, he's instructed by them. And um, the Priscilla and Aquila, or Aquila and Priscilla, are just passing along uh, the same thing that Paul probably did with them in, as they met up in Corinth, is he pulled them aside and taught them more accurately the ways of Jesus. And this reminds us uh, of a couple things. That um, teaching is central to the Christian faith. It really is. Um, and the accuracy of our teachers will determine uh, the health of our churches to a large extent. If we as teachers here and preachers at Riverview fail you in this way, it will show up in the pews. If we are faithful, and then you guys respond in faithfulness, it's it's going to be blessed by the Lord. 
So it reminds us here that the Christian faith has always been one of knowledge. It's not knowledge alone. It's not head knowledge alone. But we should never pit our head against our hearts, our emotions. Right? They all work together in unison. And the Bible engages all of those things and transforms and redeems all of those for the glory of Christ. So after this, uh, Apollos heads off to Achaia. That's the province or the area uh, that Corinth is in. So he goes there and he, and he preaches and he preaches powerfully, refuting the Jews, proving to them from the scriptures uh, that the Christ is, in fact, uh, Jesus, Jesus himself. So now we know from the early chapters of 1 Corinthians uh, that Apollos kind of got almost a cult following in that church because he was such a gifted teacher, because he was so eloquent, because he was able to defeat the Jews in open and honest uh, debate about the identity of Christ. So we have this division that comes into the church of Corinth uh, that Paul addresses in his first few chapters of 1 Corinthians, that some follow Peter, some follow Paul, some follow Apollos, and some follow Christ. And when someone's personality takes on such a large role, it can actually be counterproductive uh, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, don't get me wrong, we want gifted and powerful preachers and teachers. But we, as those who sit under them, as we look to people in our own day, people like like a John MacArthur or a John Piper or any other really gifted preacher, if we start idolizing that person, uh, we misunderstand the content of their message. And that's really what happens with Apollos here, too, is people are pitting themselves as either on Paul's team or Apollos's team, but Apollos and Paul are on the same team. As Paul says in the letter, I planted, Apollos watered, but it's God who gives the growth. We're just servants. We're serving uh, the same person. And at some point, um, Apollos heads back to Ephesus. Ephesus is the location where Paul writes uh, 1 Corinthians, the letter to the Corinthians. And Paul is there with Apollos, it says in 1 Corinthians 16, 12. And he officially, uh, or initially, Apollos refuses to go back to Corinth. He doesn't want this idol worship. He doesn't want them to be placing their trust in the power and the wisdom of the speech of a mere man. It's rather the work of Christ uh, that really matters. So Paul and Apollos worked together. They worked. Uh, they complemented one another. They're not against one another uh, like the, the the different factions that end up in Corinth. All right. So that leads us to our very very last uh, part here: uh, theology and practice. We'll wrap this up rather shortly. Thank you for listening. Um, Christianity is a religion of history, of knowledge, and of truth. This is something we talk about often, but we, we, we really do need to get this drilled down deep into our heads here. These are real historical events that did happen. The Christian faith corresponds to what is actually there. It is not just belief in belief. It is not just a blind leap into faith. It can be tested. It can be measured. The faithfulness of our doctrines and our teaches and the teachings and our practices can and should be measured as to whether or not they are accurate and whether and where our blind spots are and we can grow uh, in truth. By knowing the truth, we can renew our minds. By renewing our minds, we can change the way we think. By changing the way we think and feel, we can change uh, the way we act. The Bible addresses the whole person as he is made in God's image. A Christ that means Christianity is not a mystical or experience-based religion. Don't hear me saying that you shouldn't experience God. You should, but your experiences of God do not determine what is true. It's not a mystical, uh, undefinable experience that makes you saved. It's a concrete truth declaration from God that pierces your heart, that brings new life and faith in that message. 
It is content-based. It is truth-based, not experience-based. And uh, there's a little typo here. It wouldn't be a Sunday school class with Pastor Levi if there weren't a few typos. But um, as we look internally, or as our world looks internally, the church must point the world to the external. So as our world turns inward to find truth, meaning we have to turn them to the God who is outside of themselves, to the truth that is rooted not in what I want, what I prefer, or what I like, but in what is there, and what God has declared. That is what Priscilla and Aquila did with um, with Apollos. That's what Paul did in just about all of his stops. That's what it means to be a faithful Christian. We preach and teach in accordance with what God has said, what he has declared. And that is objective, propositional truth claims made in Scripture. So that wraps up Acts chapter 18. Uh, it's good being with you, even in such a limited way, as over um, over the internet here or on video or audio recording. So I thank you for tuning in. Uh, next week we'll pick up in Acts chapter 19. We'll spend some more time in Ephesus with Paul and see where we go from there on Paul's third missionary journey. Uh, thank you again for listening. Uh, we're praying for you here at Riverview. I can't wait to have you all back in my Sunday school class, back here worshiping uh, together and encouraging one another and bearing one another's burdens together. Until then, trust in the Lord. Jesus reigns. He sits upon his throne, and he will bring good out of this, and he will bring this to an end at his appointed time. It's to him we look. I'll see you guys soon.